Hello and welcome to episode 149 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray catching breath after a run of big time professional golf, which has been fascinating to watch but does distract from some of the other important elements of golf that we like to talk about. So I think that's exactly what we're going to do today with friend of the pod and golf doyen, Mike Clayton, who without fail has interesting perspectives on topics to do with the game. And if ever there's going to be rabbit holes open up during a conversation, it's during a conversation with Clates. He'll be along in just a moment, but first in studio with me is regular co-host and resident path expert, Adrian Logue. Logue, apologies from Jimmy Emanuel today. It's just you and me chatting with Clates. Jimmy's got a magazine to put out. That's work. Yeah, yeah, actual genuine work, something I'm not that familiar with, apparently. <laughs> You've seen <But> it. Yeah. <laughs> you can recognise it. I recognise what's so going it's on. It's like pornography. I couldn't tell you what it is, but I recognise it when I see it. Yeah. Indeed. So a bit like old times for us with uh, you, me, and Clates. Clates might be one of the few guests where the conversation could legitimately turn to paths and he would have a sensible and worthwhile contribution. Yeah. He might even welcome it. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, our very first episode we recorded with Clates back on the IC Golf Podcast, within the first three minutes, we were on to course furniture. Possibly. And that wasn't in the list of topics to discuss when we started, so we'll see what happens yep. today. Let's bring him in. Coming to us from Dallas, Texas, thanks to the wonders of the internet, he's one-third of the Clayton DeVries and Pont Course Architecture Firm. He's also a former touring professional, now columnist and commentator on the game, Mike Clayton. Clayton, what takes you to that part of the world, Dallas, Texas? Well, I'm in Fort Worth, actually, which was the home of the great Ben, ben Hogan. Hogan. Yeah. Uh, Mike and Frank and I are meeting in Chicago the first time We've all been in the same room together tomorrow. Well, of course, you formed the company basically during COVID, didn't you? During lockdown. COVID, yeah. <laughs> so. so I, because Melbourne's got a direct flight to Dallas now, I figured I would come and see Sue O for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So we played today at Shady Oaks, Ben Hogan's club. Uh-huh. And then I've got a, believe it, a five o'clock flight tomorrow morning to Chicago. So, oh, man, and, you'll be- and then I'm going to. Uh, Travis City to stay with Mike and play Crystal Downs in the Kingsley Club, and then I'm going to get caddy for Elvis in the British Open qualifier at Sinkports on the 4th of July. Does anybody have a more a lot to unpack there, golf actually. life than Clay? Yeah. That's- <laughs> He's covered four separate full-time professions in the game yeah. in, uh, in three flights and, and two weeks. Just extraordinary. Did you get an opportunity to uh, peruse any of Hogan's clubs? At uh, Shady Oaks, well, you go in the back, and the collection—they're all out. The, they're not all out the back. There, there, there are, I think, about eight hundred clubs downstairs. Wow. But in, in the back of the pro shop, there are there's a rack of old irons and woods. And uh, um, I took a photo of the in the sixties. He made a metal hybrid thing, it's kind of a cross between a little slammer and a modern hybrid. It's a metal club. So he was a Genius and miles ahead of his time in terms of what he was trying to do with clubs. What sort of metal clays? You'd think metal in the 50s and 60s would be too heavy to make golf clubs. Well, it looked like aluminium, but I don't know what it was, but it's this kind of ugly-looking metal hybrid thing that he was he was trying stuff out all the time. Way ahead of his time. Yeah, I remember that. Was a cobra did a ceramic driver in the 90s made out of ceramic? Really? Yeah. Yeah, was that that thing noise. John Daly used when he won the PGA? I think it was. Uh, I think you might be right. Yes, it might have been something like a mate of mine mm-hmm. bought one. It was it was actually not a bad golf. It made a very odd sound and it felt odd in the hands. It was very sort of strange. Good that, material for deep ocean submersibles, not necessarily for uh, dear, 
to yeah. drive ahead. So how did we end up there? Let's just move uh, straight on. <laughs> the Hogan clubs at Shady Oaks. I think it's a, it's a bit of a not a novelty would be the wrong word, Clades, but I think most people who go there get a chance to swing one of Hogan's clubs, don't they? I know you've done it before, and I've seen you do it on video. I think you did it with Jeff and uh, Mike yeah. Hocking when you guys were there making the public announcement that you'd got the job back then in those days. I think it's a bit of a thing, isn't it? You get to swing one of his clubs. Yeah, and there you know there are lots of them there, and you can. You know, at the at the back, you know, they've got a track man set up and a net and a mat, and you can pull these clubs off the wall. You yeah. know, they're all four degrees flat, which is really cool. And you can play with them. Yeah, the grips are fat and got the big coat hanging down the back. And Charles was stiff, and you couldn't hook his driver. We, <laughs> we took one of his drivers out to play today, and boy, it won't hook. It won't hook. But oh. you know, stiff. The shaft's like a lamppost. Yeah. You know? No, but- no rolling bulge on the face. And yeah. Just, the modern ball. For I was me. going to say, hard to gauge, isn't it, when you use the modern ball as to exactly how the old ball would have reacted with those clubs. I can't yeah. imagine it would have been easier. No, the, well, the modern ball, the old ball would have felt so much better. Yeah. It was softer. You feel it squash this on the face. This thing feels like a stone, yeah. yeah. It's just like a rock. Yeah, yeah indeed. So it's, um, wonderful. it's a, something kind of about golf, isn't it? It's a wonderful piece of history to be able to touch. Imagine taking one of Hogan's drivers out on the golf course mm-hmm. to actually use. Not many other sports you could do that with, I didn't imagine. No. No, I guess it's uh, because players like Hogan went through so much equipment, mm. didn't they? Like, he had his own company, of course. So yeah. Make, well, he had the uh, factory, so he was just always making stuff to try out. And, yeah. yeah. You know, if there wasn't any good, he threw it away and yeah. made another one. And- Fascinating character. The segue is nice. I wanted to ask you, because I haven't spoken to you since we watched the US Open a couple of weeks ago at the LACC Country Club. Probably not the sort of golf course that Ben Hogan would have been uh, – what it was kind of built for, you've said before, that those US Opens we saw in the 80s and 90s in particular, narrow fairways and the thick rough is really sort of trying to identify Ben Hogan. What was your take on LA Country Club? It was a much more controversial venue than I thought it was going to be. Well, it was controversial only because they shot those two crazy scores, well, more than two crazy scores on the first day. So everyone, you know, all the typical US Open, you know, make it tough and brutal and chop out a long grass and play down narrow fairways thought the thing was a fast because it was like these two guys who shot 62 and it's wide open, you can drive it anywhere. But by the end of the week, uh, I think it was, I mean, Shaq did a podcast with Lawrence Donegan and, you know, I think the course was really hard and, you know, you really had to play. It was difficult. And I thought it was, it was a great tournament. It was, it was interesting. You know, there were lots of different players in the mix. And- I thought the golf was entertaining, which is why I was surprised mm-hmm. about the reaction to it. But I suppose it's one of these things, is it a good thing like that tournaments have identities and the identity that's been attached to the US Open for the last probably generation is it's this brutally difficult test. I've been listening to Eddie Pepperell, Andrew Cotter and Ian Carter's new podcast called The Chipping Forecast and Pepperell is an absolute, I was staggered, he's an absolute, he's adamant that that's what the the US Open should be. Mm. Blokes overpass, struggling, thick, rough, brutally difficult golf courses. I don't get it. Well, yeah, I, I think the identity of the US Open isn't as clear in recent years as it is for, say, the the British Open or the Open Championship where it's it's going to be Lynx golf and the courses are generally presented as they are. So it's it sort of effortlessly has an identity stemming from that. The US Open's a little bit more difficult because they choose to take it to a more diverse range of courses. So it raises this question each year of should they – 
should they make should they force a certain style of play on these courses that aren't necessarily like that design that yeah so LA Country Club would have looked awful and played awful if they'd set it up like Balter's role what we saw for the women's PGA last week wouldn't it would have been terrible and that was the question that people were grappling with for that LACC US Open was should it should it have been um, you know malformed into this quote unquote US Open test or something that uh, has the character of a US Open test. Um, but, yeah, I think the answer is no. If you're playing one of the great golf courses of the world, let it play as it is. Um, and if the intention is to have that identity for the US Open, then take it only to places that have that characteristic. Uh-huh. Um, is there room for that sort of golf, do you reckon, Clay? It's not my preferred golf to watch, but I can understand the argument that, you know, once a year that it's a, it's something different and interesting. What do you reckon? Uh, it was always hard to watch the US Open, the hacking out and yeah. You know, uh, the long rough and the brutally difficult stuff and, you know, the, the elephant in the room, of course, and the one that Paul Azinger refused to address when he said the answer to all this is <laughs> plant more trees. And when, and when Adrian says, well, they played the links the way they'd normally set up, well, that's true in the sense of the fairway wits and the rough, but they don't play the links the way they're set up because they've, they've all got T's. Miles and miles yep. further back. Yep. That's a separate is, issue in some yeah, to identity, I guess. That, is the, yeah. that was the element, the, the elephant in the room that Azinger and the other commentators refused to address was the ball goes too far. So, you know, there were low scores. It was, you know, there's a great golf course set up how its architect wanted it set up with wide fairways and firm greens and angles mattering and but with 270-yard par threes. and I was going to say, it wasn't exactly short, really, was it? It <laughs> wasn't short. And, you know, no, they can, the commentators completely failed to address the elephant in the room, as I said, which the ball's going too far. If Paul Angel had said, well, the scores are low because the ball goes too far. Well, hello, yeah, he's, that would be exactly right. Well, the but, scores that low, I mean, no, the first day scores, but overall, 10 under par won the tournament, uh, LA Country Club, but that's not... Is that low scores? Maybe it is for. Well, they weren't low. They're not. No, they're not low scores at all. But I wouldn't have thought. You know, I know that um, Mike Wan, the head of the USJ, asked Rory McIlroy when, when was the last time he hit a five iron into a par four, and he couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's whilst the scores were low, it was because they're hitting wedges of nines and eights and seven nines into most of the holes, apart from those long par threes. How many really long approach shots did you see? No, they're hitting four irons into that 290 yard par three. I saw four iron. They're only trying to carry it you know, 220, and there's a bunch of wrong. But yeah, it was uh, interesting. And of course, the very following week, we had McElroy saying, I only saw the headline Travelers Championship. What is it? The TPC River Highlands is, is the game's obsolete. It. Yeah. yeah. And Harrington, I think, but, said something similar. He, he was in a podcast where he said, he hits it at a length now, which is long enough. Like he doesn't feel like he actually needs to be any longer because you just don't have the room to hit it any longer on most of these courses. You hit it into such unusual spots that you don't want to be there. If and your dispersion obviously gets wider the longer you hit it. Um, which I, I thought it was, he he drew the line at saying, "Oh, it should be rolled back." He said, "I'll oh, just hold distance at where it is at the moment," which I thought was a little bit of a weak part of his argument. But pathetic. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I, I thought it was instructive that he said, you know, mo- for most people, what is it, 180 ball speed or something is is fast enough. Um, and if you can extend that up to 190, then occasionally you, you'll get to use that. But most courses just don't even allow you to use that level of ball speed. Yeah. You get into trouble. Yeah. yeah, but holding it where it is means that we're never going to see a 
great player hit a three under a par four again ever. Mm, yeah, and the, and the, even even after they roll it back, we're still not going to see no, that. No. You might see them hit some more six irons and five irons, but yeah, the three irons yeah. I think of the past, anyways. I mean, even the better players use hybrids these days, don't they? Um, well, who carries a two iron? Proper players use irons. Who carries a yeah, two iron these yeah. days? McElroy does he carry a two iron? No, he carries a five wood. There's nothing wrong with a five wood, by the way. But I don't think you, not a lot of not a lot of, a lot of players carrying two irons. What's the resistance? Do you reckon? Like, why is it such a heated topic? The notion of rolling back the golf ball. I think it's, uh, as you always say, it depends what the lens you view golf through is. Like if if you view golf as being bigger than your own game and that the playing fields on which you play the game are the thing that should be protected at all costs, then, yeah, you're pro rollback. Um, But if you're only interested in your own, if you can't see past your own game, then whatever very small advantage you as an amateur golfer – gain by using whatever equipment advances there are, then you want to hold on to that. Um, but I think as it's been proven again and again, you know, it's really only this top 1% of golfers that are going to be impacted by this stuff, except for those amateurs who've learnt to swing it really hard and spray it all over the place and at their local club. Well, this, which brings in which play. Which I see other every weekend. No, of course. Right. Any golf course will tell you. Of course, this is one of the arguments that's put by the, the anti-rollback Brigade, for want of a better term, isn't it, Clates? That you know, um, it's, if it's only a pro- if it's only the long players, why is it such a problem? You can lengthen golf course. Well, the problems are safety, aren't they? You're a golf course architect, and you must come across this from time to time for ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill golf courses. Safety's becoming an issue. Yeah, the ball's never been hit further offline. It's incredible how far offline the ball goes. It's, yeah, if you're no good, it's not a problem for Dustin yeah. Johnson or Rory McIlroy. They'll no. miss it by 20 yards. But a guy with a slow, high swing speed and a 21 handicap is a very bad combination with a big headed driver yeah. and a fence on yeah. the right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's a, you know, the pros that they're owned by, their opinions are owned and bought by the manufacturers. So they're just arguing the company nine. So, so line. So why anyone is listening to what, what any golf pro thinks about it, any touring player who's arguing, the anti rollback thing. Well, yes. Well, I still haven't seen a good argument as to why why the ball shouldn't be rolled back from a from a pro. Even a business argument case, Clay. So I don't understand the business argument. I can understand the a manufacturer who thinks that distance is the only thing they have to sell, and that's what they've been doing. But it shows an extraordinary laziness from an industry who constantly champions what how brilliant they are at research, development, yeah. innovation. That if distance was to be not the thing they could rely on, that there's nothing else they can market their product. Aside from the fact that nobody's giving up golf if they roll the ball back. So nobody, you're not going to sell any less golf balls. That's not happening. Yeah. Then nobody's taking up the game because of distance. Yeah. The business case doesn't make a lot of sense. This fear of the manufacturing companies that somehow the bottom's going to fall out of the golf market if the golf ball doesn't go as far, it doesn't make any and, sense, does it? And Well, the other problem is that it's a debate entirely centred in America. Yes, that's true. So, you know, they, they – I doubt there's an American who knows that the ball was rolled back in 1983 mm. for the rest of the world pretty much. And we all lost in Australia. The longest players lost 25 yards when they went from a small ball to a big ball. And no one gave up golf and it wasn't a problem. Yeah. But because America is such a big and powerful country in golf, the, the whole debate is no one cares what anyone in Australia thinks. Mm. And, 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 I, and I don't think anyone in Australia cares what happens. I think if you know the the USGA and the U, and the RNA said to the Australian Open this in two thousand twenty six when two thousand twenty six Australian Open is going to be a small ball a, a rollback ball event, 
the Golf Australia aren't going to object to that. I mean, the PGA Tour might, but Golf Australia is going to say, okay, that's fine, and we'll play the rollback ball. And but as I said, the, the the debate is so centered in America, where all the manufacturers are, and where all the golfers are, and where all the people who the people who've never lived through a rollback before, yeah. and obviously, and and, and, and and who don't understand that. Well, last time we did this, it wasn't a problem, and and it was something that America forced on the rest of the world. There was a there was a suggestion that there should be a compromise ball, a 1.66 ball, that the Americans said, no, you should compromise and use our ball, which was actually the right thing to do because if we had a compromise ball, it would be going even further. Mm. You know, at least they went with a bigger size ball. So one of the unintended consequences of not building a compromise ball was that the ball's not going as far now as it would if it was 1.65 or 1.66. Probably held off where we are now for another 10 or 15 years yeah. by uh, by going with the bigger ball first. What do you reckon is the – what do you reckon golfers think about this? Like we – I know I have and I know you have to spend lots of time immersed in this subject. What do you reckon your week-to-week club golfer thinks about it, if at all? Yeah, I think there's an out – there influenced in an outsized way by the opinions of these two pros who just keep coming out saying, no, the game's great as it is. Game's um, never been better is what you've been hearing. Though. Nobody acknowledges COVID has been the, the main driver of that and golf being one of the few options there for about two years yeah, where you could actually do it. Because that's the surface level argument. And when you don't examine the the issue to any great depth, you, that's that's what you come up with. It's like, well, it looks fine to me. Like, game's pretty healthy, isn't it? Like, they're doing great. Um, what what you don't realise is that stark contrast of what you're missing out on when you look at some old footage from like the 80s or something like that and you see what a great examination golf was on these great courses. And it was, it was again, something we saw at LACC where the better players were separating themselves out from the rest of the field. If that tournament went on for another couple of rounds, it just would have been further and further separation. It looked like Cam Smith could have won it in over six rounds yeah. um, or even five rounds. Maybe five, yeah. Four and a half might have got in there, actually. That's <laughs> right. was going on Sunday. And Wyndham Clark was playing clearly better than everybody else right. and had a great sort of winning energy about him. He'd elevated his game for that week. And it, that course did a great job of identifying the best players. And we know that that'll only get better for – it'll it'll – We'll get even further separation for the best players if the rollback occurs, because it'll mean Rory can use his length to a better advantage. It's in all the relative, way, Nor- as we in know. In the way Norman did, in the way Norman did, and then and it it's compounding as well. Like you're not only hitting your driver a little bit further, but you can hit your irons further than the next guy. So and less and, le- and less iron than the next guy. That's right. So you, you've got less distance to the green. You might be hitting yeah less iron for less distance, and yeah, it's just. It makes sense. Just a sidetrack. Yeah. Wyndham Clark was almost obnoxious with his attitude in that last round, wasn't he? He had extraordinary – you could see it coming through the TV. That, Incredible, yeah. So at, confident. At, for a player who you wouldn't have expected to feel that, normally a player in that situation would be deer in the headlights. That was an extraordinary – sorry, Clates, I think you had something to uh, to add there. No, no. Yeah. No, I did, but I forgot what it was. But um, <laughs> It'll come back oh. to you about 2 o'clock tomorrow morning. You'll yeah. you'll send me a text message. What would you think of Wyndham Clark, by the way, and and that final round? That storyline would normally have gone. Wyndham Clark wilts in the face of a you know an onslaught from Rory McIlroy in the yeah. round. It just didn't happen. Yeah he, yeah, he did what Ricky Fowler did, perhaps. But I think everyone assumed Rory was going to win. I mean, I love Rory's quote about, I'll, I'll, I'll go through 100 Sundays yeah. like this to Win the next one. So good. Yeah. I, I think, you know, as well as John Rahm, I mean, Scheffler's been amazing the last 12 months. He's been more. He's been, he's played the best golf probably. But 
I think Rory's the best player when he's playing well. I love watching him play. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, he's been distracted to some degree by the live thing and being wheeled out as the face of the tour to make the case for the tour. I'm sure that hasn't helped his golf that much. But no. I mean, I, he needs to win one of these things shortly because because he's the best player. He's always there. He's putting himself there and, and the, assumed he. I assume. I think most people assumed he was going to win on Sunday, and he didn't. Very much. And look, it, it, both last year at the Open, where Cam Smith won, and this year at the US Open, Rory McIlroy played the rounds of golf Tiger Woods would have played in his prime. Yeah, and both times was ended up not getting the job done. I don't know what that tells us about the but rest. Maybe of the game. Tiger would have like Tiger always got did what he needed to get done. Yeah, Rory fell one shot short. The style of play was similar. But when when you if you just needed to be one shot better, you, I thought you more so the feel like Tiger in his prime year, always did what he fa- needed. He'd have found to that do. shot somewhere. Yeah, he even found that to be on the 18th. Yeah. Yeah. What do you reckon about that, Clay? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think Rory hit 18 greens at St Andrews. Not that it's that hard to hit 18 greens at St Andrews, but that's no mistakes. Yeah. You've still got to hit on the 17th green, and you've still got to you know you've got to hit, and he hit 15 greens at. Yeah. Um, LAC. LAC. So, yeah. so the last, the final round of the Open and the US Open, he's hit 33 of 36 greens, you would think. And he started out tied for the lead at the old course and won behind it. Yeah. LACC. Yeah. So you would think if he hit on the course of those two rounds, 33 of 36 greens, plus he hit it on the par fives for two at the old course. And yeah. But he basically had 36 putts. You'd have a pretty good shot at winning, wouldn't you? It, I, I think he. Might have had thirty four putts or something at LACC, but it it just wasn't hitting it close enough, or in the right spots. He couldn't hit aggressive putts. From yeah, he'd hit it to it's true. He wasn't hit it. You know, you look at how far he hit the ball from the hole. It was you know, there were lots of holes where he was not within reasonable range of birdie. But if he two putted eight and didn't hit a wedge in the bunker at fourteen, he wins the tournament. He wins. Yeah. So it wasn't like he wasn't hitting it close enough. He was hitting it close enough. Yeah. If he'd not made those two kind of mistakes, which is. And he shot seventy on a on a difficult golf course. Yeah, exactly, this is the thing. He it must wasn't be, like it was easy. He hasn't played poorly from mm-hmm. right there at the point, <laughs> particularly in those two. He's done really nothing wrong. I mean, Nicholas's old adage wasn't it, Clates, that most of the time just let the field come back to you. Make sure you're yeah. around there, and that most of them will give it up. And as long as you're standing yeah. there waiting, you'll pick up your fair share of trophies. And, you know, and we've had two there where Rory hasn't come up. I wonder whether the style of the game has perhaps changed in some way, Clates. We focus a lot. I, I, very inarticulately tried to write this the week after the LA Country Club with hard and easy golf, don't we? Shouldn't the goal be interesting golf? I thought the golf at LA Country Club was interesting and really low-scoring golf can be interesting. Somewhere in the middle tends to be, for the most part, the most interesting, I think, and really hard golf can be interesting as well, perhaps maybe sprinkled with other stuff. But talk a bit about that as an idea because this this notion the US Open needs to be hard, really hard, it's actually, as a course designer, the easiest thing to do, isn't it? Make a golf course hard. Yeah, just just grow the fairways narrow and mm. grow the rough long. So I don't think you know, the shots around the green are not interesting when you're just hacking out a long grass. You know, no player is really accurate enough to hit 30-yard wide fairways with any, as far as they hit the ball with any regularity. Mm. So you see what Bryson did at Wingfoot where he just drove it as far as he could and wedged it out of the rough. And he'd hit like 40 the sound of the fairways maybe, which was better than the field average. Yeah. So it wasn't like he drove poorly. He just figured the way to play the golf course was to hit it as far as he could and miss it on the sides where you were advantaged and play from the rough. So it's 
you know, the climate in America is not anywhere near as suited to interesting golf as Australia and Britain is or are because we've got wind and firm ground. America tends to be, you know, not so windy and softer ground because the because the places they play are in, you know, in Fort Worth today, it's so hot. So the greens, you've got the bent greens, you've got to water the greens. So the greens are soft and, you know, it's much more, it'll go through the air. So it's, you know, by definition, it's less interesting when you're not so concerned about what the ball does once it hits the ground, it, I, which is why the Lynx golf, why Lynx golf and why the Open Championships are interesting because what the ball does when it's on the ground is the most interesting part of the game. It, and because because the LACC was so firm, then what the ball was doing once it once it hit the green was actually really interesting. Yeah. And, and I thought it was. And I do, I just don't like golf when when golf is played down narrow fairways bordered by high grass because. You know, we're used so we're so used in Australia with Royal Melbourne being the best course, being set up with wide fairways, and where you drive the ball to, you get a much different shot from one side of the fairway to yeah. the other. Yeah. And if you drive to the preferred side of the fairway, then you get an easier shot. And if you drive to the other side, then you get a much more difficult shot. So it's so the great thing about watching Seve play Royal Melbourne was he had room to play there. But when he was on the wrong side of the fairway, he was good enough to play the great shot. You know, he could take the blind iron or the five iron in high over the bunker and kind of stop it from a bad angle, reasonably close close enough to the hole where he wasn't going to three putt. But you know, if, if the models hit it over there, they were going to if they hit it on the green, it was going to it was going to run and chase and be 45, 50, 60 feet away, and you were going to finish up with a four or five footer for par, and half the time you missed it. So you know that showed how golf could be interesting when it was bouncy and wide. Now, of course, the ball goes too far, so Royal Melbourne's a pitch and putt course. And that's not in any derogatory sense a pitch and putt course. That's just the reality of what yeah. it is yeah. and why the ball's got to get rolled back because Royal Melbourne and Alison McKenzie deserve much more than to be played as a pitch and putt course. And when I say pitch and putt, essentially every par four is a wedge. And, and you watch the President's Cup there, pretty much every par four is a wedge shot. Yeah. yeah. It's not just the respect for McKenzie. There's a whole lot of other really um, – important reasons why golf doesn't need to expand its footprint any more than it already yeah. is in urban and non-urban centres. I mean, if you made a 50-year plan and part of that plan was, well, let's let the, let's, let's make golf courses another 20% longer and take up 20% more space because the ball goes so far, I'm not sure that that would be a fantastic business plan. You were itching to say something there, Logan. Uh, well, no, the moment passed, but I, I was also going to mention uh, the what we saw at Bolter's role last week with the KPMG Women's PGA, um, I found very disappointing. I, like, I was really looking forward to that tournament, but from a, um, a course mm. test point of view, um, I think it just turned into a pretty straightforward test of execution um, where the greens were a little bit too big for how soft they were and the fairways were a little bit, actually a little bit too wide for... Um, the way the strategy set up that going into those greens and and also for the women who just hit it so straight that they don't really miss the fairways. And then the rough was very one-dimensional and it just had that manicured look about it, which I can't stand. And it was it was going all the way up to the fringes of the greens and all the way up to the edges of the bunkers. And the whole the whole thing just it just was, you know, in the end it we could got- could have been 30 other golf courses around, <laughs> around America that we've yeah, seen. Yeah, all the lies are pretty flat. And 
perfect lies as well in the middle of the fairway. So you've got a player who was executing really well, played fantastic golf, Phenomenal. great golf swing, um, and hit hit the hell out of her irons in particular, her iron approaches. Eight, she had 36 greens in the, over the last round. Yeah. She missed a yeah. green in two rounds. Oh, that's it. When, They're so big greens, though. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe, but still, the, the stat is something like it's, you're less likely as a tour professional to hit 18 greens than you are to have a hole in one. It's done less frequently <laughs> by touring yeah, professionals. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a pretty yeah. staggering sort of thing to think about. Yeah. You're right about that. What is the role for difficulty in golf then, Clates? Because you're bogged down in this hard, too hard and too easy discussion and, you know, people tell oh, if you make the fairways, well, it's too easy. What's the role for difficulty and where does difficulty come from? Well, there should be difficult holes and difficult shots. That doesn't mean you have a, a route march from the first tee to the 18th green and it's just a relentless struggle to break 75. So, which is why the old course is so great. It's not, you know, I mean, no, no, for these guys, no courses are difficult unless you completely distort the dimensions of them with narrow narrowness and long grass. No courses are difficult because the ball goes so far. So, you know, the role for difficult, I mean, the role is interest. You've got the golfers got to be interesting. Why Augusta's great every year because, you know, that back nine's fascinatingly interesting and the short grass around the greens and, how they play the short shots and how they handle how the ball bounces into the greens and those shots over the water at 13 and 15 are interesting. And, you know, that's why the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne was so good, which is we should get to the when they announced the President's Cup at Kingston Heath today, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. We should, yeah. So we should talk about that. But, um, you know, that's why the, the Open to me is always the most interesting tournament because it's, it's it's rarely is it predicated around a really difficult setup. We had I played that open that Greg won at Turnbury, which was crazy difficult in '86, and then the Canoosti '99 one at Canoosti. Yeah. So they've had two kind of blowout disaster course setups in U.S. Open on a windy links years. just doesn't work. Don't <laughs> yeah. long rough yeah. and links wind tough test. Yeah, yeah. So that that '63 that Greg shot the second day at Turnbury was I played well that day shot 74 and 63 was like no one could believe that round it was just beyond belief what he shot there yeah indeed but you know that, that was a I mean he shot even par for the week and won by a few yeah so that was um that was crazy but you know there's a role for difficult shots and difficult holes and every great course has got a difficult shot mm. and, a, and a bunch of difficult holes because they want to test you know can you you know Tom Doak said he when he talks about difficult holes, he said, I don't want to see the difference between what a five handicapper can do and what a scratch player can do. I want to see the difference between what a scratch player can do and what a tour player can uh-huh. do. And, and for those who, anyone who's played Bamboogle, the eighth hole, or yep. the eighth, the, the 13th at St. Andrews Beach, which are probably the two hardest par fours in Australia. And they're the hardest par fours because they're par fives, really. Yes, that's true. But I've played those holes with Jeff Ogilvie and seen him just drive a seven iron, no problem. I mean, it's just, so you you want to when when it's difficult you want to see what a, why a tour pro is better than the club champion. You know, so, so it's it's about you know it's about essentially now it's about length. But the ball goes so far that the length is not it's not unless you build a those two par threes at LACC, which which I assume were when Thomas did that course he had the course within a course and cool. seven and eleven were designed as par threes and par fours. And you could play them as either. I'm assuming they played the par threes off the par four tees. 
You'd think so. Or close to it. I think seven has a T further back. That, yeah, at about yeah. 350. But, yeah. you know, the, I mean, the members probably play that whole lot of 180 yards. I don't know what they play it as, but it's a long bar three, but not 270 yards or no, whatever it was. No, no, yeah, exactly. Where that Barranca comes across, that actually looks like it would be a fantastic short par four. Yes. It's a I great – I've yeah. played as a par four. It's a great short par yeah. four. It's brilliant. As was the sixth – it has to be said. I thought that was the standard of the yeah, whole week. It was yeah, really the, impressive. You saw all of what you're talking about, Clates, I think, on the six-hole touring pros and, you know, a full field of them for two days and then <laughs> after the cut, the, the blokes who were playing the best. And that whole gave them fits. You, you would struggle to find tour pros having more difficulty with a 70-yard pitch shot than they were for those who laid up on the sixth hole at LACC. And then those guys who went yeah. for the green, it was just a – it was a mishmash of. I mean, there's a there's a little bit of what's going to happen when it gets there environment. But I thought that hole really sort of showed everything that you're talking about. I mean, you look at it on the scorecard; it's not difficult, is it? 297 yard par three, yeah. drivable. How hard could yeah. it be? Yeah. It, it was also That's very interesting hole. the way the weather changed during the day. You had the marine layer early in the day, which was uh, rather cold and uh, would, perhaps might have required. Um, you know, the ideal sort of thing would be a, a merino wool mock, mock neck. From, where, where would you uh, get Angus one of those? Grace Go Golfing. Grace Go Golfing. Yeah. So uh, they've got a new range of clothes that, with uh, merino wool necks, which would be perfect for Clates if he wasn't in incredibly hot <laughs> 40 Fort degrees work. in Fort Worth. This is, this is right yeah, up your alley. Would. This has got Clates written all over it, this, this uh, merino wool neck. Uh, it's made with ZQ Merino, which is the Did world's leading. Did you say leading, Z? Yeah. <laughs> Did you mean that or was that an accident? I'm going with that, uh, which is the world's leading ethical wool brand, available in navy and charcoal. Again, that's very clates. Very Char- clates. Charcoal is very clates. Yeah. He's I'm like, going to grab a couple when I go up for the open. <laughs> Good. Yeah, uh, perfect for the open. When yeah. is the open? November or December? December, uh, right? I don't Hopefully know. December? We might have a little get-together in the shop. That uh, that day, we, and th- we should we should do that, which you can find at thirty nine William Street, Paddington. Um, uh, <laughs> Have you fulfilled your contractual all, all obligations Matt's, yet? That stuff's available. Oh, you find it on Angus and Grace Go Golfing on Instagram, uh, or Angus and Grace Go Golfing You're actually an Angus and Grace Go Golfing guy, aren't you, Clates? I've, I've got a fantastic rain jacket, which I was wearing to death in Australia. Before I got I one of those. Out. Yep. I, I couldn't wait to get out of Melbourne again in some warm weather, and I've been here about three hours. So I've got to get me back to Melbourne. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so the two coolest golf shops in Australia are Angus and Grace and Mulligan Club Makers in High Street, yes, Melbourne. Ross Baker and Henry Russell. No, 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 no. Oh. Not um, Adam Jefferson in High Street, Melbourne, yeah. In fact, I went to Ross and um, Henry's shop the other day as well, but Adam's got – he's got some Angus and Grace stuff in there, and he makes the coolest new clubs. He's – and hand grinding me a set of Japanese Japanese heads, forged heads. He's going to make me a set of clubs out of that. So, okay. So, so, so it's good that there was some. So, High Street Morven and, and Grace in Paddington are two you know, really cool kind of areas that are not known for last place you'd imagine to be yeah. cool golf stuff. But certainly Paddington up here in Sydney, you'd be the last place you'd expect to find anything golf. Yeah. Yeah. Except perhaps a touring pro had bought a house there because they're about the only people who can afford it. <laughs> Because yes. <laughs> it's because uh, it's not cheap. Uh, what do you do, Clint? You mentioned at the start a whole bunch of travel that you're doing. What are you up to over there? You mentioned that you're going to go and play Crystal Downs with Mike and whatnot, but I'm interested in what you've got on the go with CDP around the place. You've got more than more than a handful of projects now, haven't you? We have. We're doing we're doing a place called Indian Hill in Chicago, which is a Don Ross 
Harry Colt, Langford and Moreau kind of collaboration. Well, there's a punch. Fun. Wow. That's a punch, isn't it? A punch of golf course architects. So it was the course that Bill Murray and his brother's caddy. Oh, okay. So the I, movie guy. I suspect there's a bit of Indian Hill in Caddyshack. Um, Lawrence Herity caddied there. Lawrence who caddied for Bob Shearer for many years, including when he won the Australian Open at the Australian. Lawrence caddied there with his brothers and his mother and his sisters worked in the kitchen for years. So we're all meeting up there tomorrow, the first time the three of us have been in the same room together. So we're at Indian Hill for meeting with the members for a couple of days. Okay. Then I'm up at Traverse City for two days with Mike and then we're going to London. So Mike's been at the Addington, building a 19th hole at the Addington in London. And then we're we're all sort of over there for the open and a bunch of guys have invested in a place called Spay Bay, which is up near Nan in Scotland. So we're all heading up there. We're going to redo that place, which will be – Frank has seen it. I haven't. So we're looking forward to seeing that. It looks pretty interesting. A bunch of guys, crypto guys. So – uh, get, made, get paid. I was say, get paid up front. Yeah, so, and <laughs> in actual money, uh, if it comes to that. So, so that, and then I'm, so, as I said, I'm coming for Elvis and Open Qualify. There are four courses, twelve spots, so three spots at each course. So, um, you got to be good, don't you? <laughs> I see Charles Charles Schwartzels at our course, right? Which is. Um, yeah, you just got to play well. Yeah. You got to play really well. Play really well at, at the right time, and then that'll get you a start. And, yeah, and, just don't shoot two sixty sixes, and you'll be fine. Well, don't <laughs> maybe two sixty sixes. You probably wouldn't leave the golf course. Two sixty sevens. You'd probably go home if you're out if you're out early because it's probably not going to get it done. The scoring's crazy in those qualifiers. Just ridiculous. that'll make it. That'll make it. Yeah, Sink, Royal Singapore's is a hard course. Oh, it's a Singapore. Okay, yeah, terrific course. Yeah, which is why I told Elvis to pick it because it, it was the hardest of the four, probably. So. That's an interesting strategy, isn't it? You'd think most most golfers would want to go to the easiest course, but that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Go to the hardest course. No, you, want the the hard, you want the hardest course, yeah. The better players. If you play well, you've got, you don't have to shoot crazy numbers. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Anyway, so that's that's that. And then we're going, Billy Longmuir and I are going to Royal Dublin for a few days. So you're on we'll it. Be, oh. Will you be seeing um, Shane Darby? Yeah, I think is, we are. Yes. I think I've raised to see him. Yeah, you have. He's but, told me about um, it four or five times. He's very excited. <laughs> He'll probably yeah. meet you at the airport, but... <laughs> the way he's going, yeah. which would be terrific. So it's a crazy trip. You know, it's one of those, yeah, two days here, two days there, you know, sort of never knowing where you're staying, renting cars, just a stressful travel. Traveling is stressful when it's like that. I don't enjoy it much, but it is what it is. Well, so anyway. Yeah. Boohoo playing Crystal <laughs> That's Downs. That's exactly right. And, we all feel uh, terribly sorry for you. Yeah. Kingsley Club. Yeah. Have you ever seen Crystal Downs before, Clates? I have. I played Crystal Downs with Bruce Grant in – 2002, so 20 years ago I played there. Okay. Didn't play Kingsley because I think Mike had done it, but we didn't know about it really. It's not that far away. So Mike's a member at Crystal Downs, so um, I'm looking forward to getting back there. That's one of the great courses of the world, really. It's not that well known, but Ben Crenshaw sort of went up there and played there. He was playing the Buick Open in Flint, Michigan, and he went up there for a day and played there or an afternoon and came back raving about it. So it's one of those sort of hidden gems in America that no Australians would go there because they've probably not heard of it. But no, I don't. It wasn't even recognised right. on American top one hundred lists for a number of decades. For a long time, yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of ensconced in the top twenty or thirty now. But yeah, it's a brilliant course. It was the one where McKenzie went and thought he'd routed out a great front nine until 
he was told that he only had eight holes. So <laughs> is that right? Never heard that <laughs> story. <laughs> So he added the ninth, which is a really cool kind of uphill par three for a green just under the pro shot, which is which is um so, great hole. It's like it's like marking your ball but forgetting to put down the marker, isn't it? <laughs> like you can yeah. see that it could happen, but you know, you've done eight holes here, mate. Oh oops, better yeah. find another one. That's outstanding. Yeah. I think Robert Hunter might have been involved in it as well. And uh, no, it wasn't Hunter, it was um Maxwell. I've had a complete blank. Perry Maxwell. Ma- yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it was. It was Perry Maxwell. Yeah. It was Maxwell who said you've only got eight holes. <laughs> so, um, so what was the reaction to the President's Cup being I mean it was the worst kept secret, but it wasn't even a secret, was it? The members at I don't think so, Peninsula no. and Royal Melbourne had both been told they didn't get it. So it, <laughs> it was a fa- fairly small candidate. field left over, wasn't it, of what it might yeah. have been. Uh look, I think it, it probably what it exactly what it should have been. It's like uh, you can't help but love Royal Melbourne, but and Kingston Heath has lived in Royal Melbourne's shadow for so long, but they're really neck and neck, aren't they? If you meet someone who says Kingston Heath's a better course than Royal Melbourne, you don't dismiss them as an idiot. You can make a legitimate call, case, can't you? So it'll be no, good to can't. see. No. Yeah, no. I, I, I don't well, get that. Oh, I, no, I, you can't. No, okay. you can't. I, well, I, I love Kingston Heath. It's a mm-hmm. fabulous golf course. But you can make a legitimate argument that Royal Melbourne's the best course in the world. Certainly the composite. The composite course. Okay, I'm going along with that. And it's absolutely one of the top five or six. Cypress Point, National Golf Links, St Andrews, Pine Valley. You know, it's um, – Yeah, I suppose. Okay, you've, it's just but you've talked me down. You can't, right. you, you can't make an argument that Kingsneath is the best golf course in the world. Is in that class. No, no, you're quite right. You can't make that argument. No. It is, however, an extraordinary golf course and will be a no, fabulous venue for the president. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I was, I was looking at a, at a ranking list of 30 or 40 years ago when Kingsneath was eight or nine in Australia. Metro was – was Royal Melbourne, the Australian Metro were the top three. And before Graham Grant started working there in 1982, Kingston Heath was no better than any other of Victoria, Metro, Commonwealth, Yarra Yarra. Below Royal Melbourne, clearly, but those that next level, Woodlands really, that next level, there was nothing to distinguish Kingston Heath from the others because mm. it wasn't very good. It was good for the time because nothing was very good because the, the sand belt had spent, the committees of the sand belt had spent from the end of the Second World War until 1970 or 80, essentially wrecking what made the sand belt great. Planting trees, filling in bunkers, you know, just doing all the dumb things that committees do. And Graham set about restoring Kingston Heath. He chopped the trees down, he restored the bunkers. He rebuilt the tees. He rebuilt some greens. He got rid of all the mushy soft power greens, and he, and he got it in great shape, and it immediately went to number two in Australia because they were just the first club that did that. And Bruce Grant, Graham's brother, and John Stone, I went and did the same thing in Victoria a decade later, and Commonwealth are finally catching up 30 years later. So the sand belt is not, it's back to where it was in 1930. It was great before they did stupid stuff to it. But Kingston Heath was was to think in, this was probably 1980 was the, was a ninth ranked course in Australia, yeah. Pre Bamboogle Dunes and St Andrews Beach and all the all the modern redos, it was no one thought it was very special because it wasn't. It's remarkable it to took, think about, isn't it? And it took yeah. it took a an amazing committee man, Bruce Langford Jones, who was the captain, who got rid of the Green Committee, and said to Graham Grant, "Go and." Fix it. Have at it. Yeah. 
And they did an extraordinary job, amazing job of the golf course to the point where, you know, it's now people talk about it like it's, you know, almost as good as Royal Melbourne, which it is, but it's not Royal Melbourne because Royal Melbourne's one of the best courses in the world. And Royal Melbourne never, although you see old pictures with the tea tree kind of encroaching, but Paul Crockford had so much respect at Royal Melbourne and they had to control the golf course, but no one ever really messed with it. Yeah. Because either, either the committee understood instinctually that it was great or Crockford just had control of it and said, no, you're not doing right. that. So Royal Melbourne never went down the rabbit holes that the other clubs did. Imagine if it had. How, how different might Australia go? Because it's always been a shining example, there, hasn't it? Well, it had its it troubles always... with the turf. Yes, it has had that. And... But, but with the design and tree planting and filling in yeah. brokers, there's been very little of that at Royal Melbourne, really, has there, um, over time? Yeah, and, and very little of, you know, rough growing in or narrowing, you know, yeah. people having – the fairways are too wide. We need to narrow the fairways. That argument's never got up. The greens have always, you know, never been power. Whereas Kingston Heath and, you know, I remember playing pennant there in the late 70s. They were soft, mushy power. I remember hitting a shot in the Port Phillip. They were back left pin at the 15th hole. And the ball was in the pitch mark. It just buried in the pitch mark. Wow. I mean, that's... In the late 70s. So it was... That's Sydney goal. Yeah, it was... Oh, <laughs> so amazing yeah, about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's sacrilege when you that, think about we call it. that a green irregulation in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. But you can make the argument that Kingston Heath was the most important yeah. golf course in Australia because they were the ones who set about restoring the golf course, chopping down the dumb trees that you know, those big mahogany gums that committees had planted in the fifties that were big and dangerous and ugly and not indigenous, so didn't belong there. And Dragging out all the old photos and putting the bunkers back. Yeah, and it takes exactly what takes courage to do, doesn't it? It it takes courage, but also takes fifteen, twenty years for the heath to be restored as well. Yeah, like like I've seen. So Victoria now has fantastic heath. It's taken a long time. The first meeting we had at Victoria, this was in nineteen ninety-five, and I said, you know, I think clearly we had the old black and white photo in the room of Victoria in nineteen thirty. I said, well, you know, the best club, the most successful club in the last. You know, decade, the last 15 years has been Kex and Heath. And one of the guys in the committee said, I think they've ruined that course, mm-hmm. which was a silly argument because it was clearly ranked number two in Australia. So it wasn't an argument that you could back up. Well, it's like, well, that's not what anyone else thinks. You might think that, but no one agrees with that. And, you know, that, that argument held no sway. And, you know, we, we got to do, to go down exactly the same path Kex and Heath had gone down. So they were, they were incredibly important in showing everyone else what to do. And, and it's essentially restored the sand belt. Yeah. You know. 1980s is a bit earlier than what we've sort of seen with golf course architecture with Sand Hills, I think it was 95, yeah? Sand Hills? Uh, sand Hills was early 90s. Early 90s. So, so, 92, 93. Which has been another example of that. They set an example which others have yeah, slowly but surely started to realise actually that is much more what we should do. So these things take a long time. But to be the first is does take some some courage. Did Grant get much resistance at Kingston? He said he had the support of the club president. Oh, yeah. Was there much resistance Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a lot of Chris. Because that could easily have been derailed, couldn't it? You would know very well, Clates, how easy it is yeah, for absolutely. things to get derailed yeah. at golf clubs. And it wasn't just vegetation well, as well. It was reshaping mm. some stuff as well. well. Well, he put back all the bunkers at the 15th hole. The, unbelievable that filled in for some silly reason. He found a whole, all those second-shot bunkers down the left side of the 12th hole in the middle of the tea tree. He knew they were in there because he'd seen the, seen the old maps. Right. And he, and he just dug the tea tree out and got rid of the tea tree, and there the bunkers yeah, that, were yeah, just waiting were. for someone to rebuild them. Yeah. So, you know, you'd have 
a phenomenal job. Yeah. So, so what's your take then, Clates, on what uh, people are going to see at the President's Cup? Uh, it, it, is it a positive to move it away from Royal Melbourne? I'm a bit of a Royal Melbourne addict. I think for tournament golf, it's, it's an amazing place. But what's your take on going to Kingston Heath? Well, I think part of the reason the government paid $30 million to bring the President's Cup here is that they promote the Sandbell as an area, not just Royal Melbourne. Just Royal Melbourne. So, so I think there's something to do with – and Royal Melbourne have had it three times and Kingston is a great course and came down to Peninsula. And I think Peninsula was arguably a better venue because it's got more space. We saw how crazy the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne was, how difficult it was to watch. And I hope they flip the order and finish on the order that Harry Webb won the Women's Open on where three, four, five, and six were the finishing holes. Yeah. Because they're all so close together. Yeah. And in match play, there's, there's space around those holes. And you can get a lot of people around those holes and you can see – you don't need to walk far to see what's going on. Yeah. But 15, 16, 17, 18 on the normal course are all quite separate from each other. So You would assume that the six is a great know, I think there's only one routing to use for that golf course, and it's you, know, you play 1, 19, 12 to 18, 7, 8, 9, 11, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. That's the best routing to use, and I hope they use that routing. Yeah, yeah. yeah six is fantastic finishing hole, much like the second at Newcastle it should be. Like, and I think they're finding a way to make that the finishing hole in the re, yeah. reworking of Newcastle. And, and you can build a, you know, that massive, well, the corporate tent they have down the – well, having said that, they don't normally do the big massive build that on the 18th hole because so many matches finished before that. Yes, that's but, right. You know, you, you, could, you could do a big kind of corporate thing on the, on the left and right side of the fourth hole, you know, um, which is where you know the fourth hole, the fourth hole, which is which would be the sixteenth in the Presidents Cup, yep. which is where you know most matches get to and seventy or eighty percent of matches will finish there, it, won't it, they? And yeah. it's nice and close or, to the clubhouse, or, 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 or they carry on through there. Yeah, or yeah. they're very so, exciting as they arrive there. It's it's a fantastic sort of thing. To that's make. why Royal Melbourne was so great because it had the eighteenth on the east course, yeah. was the sixteenth hole, and that had so much space that you you, know, you could fit a million people in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because uh, logistically, having seen the build out at Royal Melbourne in twenty nineteen. Oh, you do wonder how they're going to fit it all at Kingston Heath, don't you? Yeah, it's a big production, isn't it's it? It's a huge it's a, show. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a massive show. Yeah, twenty nineteen was stay. I mean, the entry it was a it was a three quarters of a kilometre walk from the car park through an extraordinary sort of merger. They had yeah. the they had the luxury of that at Royal Melbourne, of course. But that's kind of what it's people part of have, why we can't get the tenth at uh, Kingston Heath. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that that'll be sort of interesting to see. So you applaud them for taking it to a great goal because you're right, Clates, it would have been much easier at Peninsula Kingswood, wouldn't it? You've got so much space there to put as much stuff as you like. Much more like. room. Yeah, you Heaps can park all the cars on the site. And, yeah, yeah, there was much more room there. So, you know, the, I, I don't know. I suspect that Peninsula will probably get the Australian Open next year. I assume it's – this is the last year in Sydney, I think. Is it last, the last or is it the deal in Sydney? Well, we missed one with the COVID. the last one. Is this, this the last, the last one? one? I, I think, think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah you would, certainly. There's been there's been quite a bit of and, and chatter about Penn and Charles. If they're going to keep playing the mixed deal, you want to be on a 36 hole course. You can't. Yeah, they, two they are. Does, doesn't work. For no, them. they are absolutely adamant that they're going to keep playing the mixed courses. This, that's what the I sponsors said, I said want. I see they've changed it. What are they doing? The women are. It's a smaller field. It's a, and it's a smaller field for the women, uh, and there's no two cuts. It's just for one. The men. It's one cut. 
for both, for both ties. One cut yeah. for both fields. It's one cut, six, 60 in ties for men. And 32 or 36, I think, in ties for men. And, and they and start the with a smaller field. They start with a smaller And the women's, women's prize money got cut. It's not equal anymore, I think. Possibly, which would make sense if you have a smaller field and less players playing the weekend. Yeah, I think if you miss the the cut in the women's, they only pay thirty players. I think that might be wrong, but right. Sue was Sue had spoken to Curry about it, and Curry was not happy with what, what they'd done. But apparently, but the, the danger with this mixed event, the Australian Open, unlike the Vic Open, is I think this is the sort of thing that yeah. will start to have decisions will start to be get to be being made in the interests of the men's Open at the expense of the women's. That's yeah. the danger. Yeah. yeah, and the women's Open. The women's open should absolutely be separate, and you know I know that it loses money, but it loses what I think it lost six hundred thousand dollars when it was last in Adelaide. I'm not sure, but, but yes, it, yes, it's not a money yeah. maker necessarily. Hmm. It means you've got but to constantly great. compromise everything with thirty six whole courses or courses very close to each other as well. Yeah. Um, it's it'll be I'll be staggered if it goes all smoothly this year in Sydney. Sydney's an awful place to try and use two different golf courses. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bad it'll be Australian and the lakes, yeah. that, and that is just Australian brutal. and the lakes is the best. It's case as good scenario as it, it's as good as it can get. And unless it's you're still going to be really unless tough. you're doing St Michael's yeah. in New South Wales, that's yeah. about as good as it's going to get. Yeah. And it's going to be brutal. I mean, traffic in Sydney on a weekend is the same as traffic in Sydney on Monday to Friday. No. Uh, nobody's going to yeah. stop Works. going out because yeah. the golf's on. It's yeah. just going to be that's going to be a really, really, really difficult one. So, yeah, we'll see. So do, positive, but yeah. yeah, do we think they've got to run the experiment out with the men and women and see how it works, and it either evolves into something that's worthwhile or it doesn't? And you abandon it? I mean, how long do you give it? Well, the biggest problem they've got, Clates, and this is they've made they've kind of made a rod for their own back. The biggest problem they've got is scheduling. It makes the most sense for the men's open to be towards the end. I know you can make the case for February, but that's the worst possible time to have the women's open. And for the women, it makes a lot more sense to be at the start of the year before that Asian swing of the LPGA. In February, yeah, yeah, and it does. yeah. The worst time for women to play is, is, is December. That's exactly right. And, and in and fact, the worst time for men to play is February. Yeah. The 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 woman who won it last year said it's at an awful time of year what a what a terribly difficult time to fit into the schedule and so yeah yeah so so they more so than anything else that's going to damage one field or the other if it's going to be under this it's yeah. why when it's why the vic open always felt like the women's field and the women's tournament was the was the pick of the two events oh for sure you know, the oh, field was always yeah, – yeah, yeah, the women's field carried the men's yeah, field. And that kind of, I thought that worked. The Vic Open always had a fabulous field. The Australian Open last year from players and everybody else there, there was a there was always something sort of – it was the first time they'd done it too, so there was a bit of uncertainty, I guess, but it just never felt like it had the full support. Whereas the Vic Open always felt like everybody was there having a great time and it was a festival. Yeah, but the you know, the, t- the two-cut thing for the men was a disaster. They lost – Smith, yeah, Leachman, yeah. Fox, and Look, Davis. So that's four of the best six uh, players on Saturday night. And it was always going to be a disaster. I mean, I had that discussion with James Sutherland. Well, you were there probably on Saturday night, but it was always going to be a disaster. You can't cut a field of 30 players for one round. It was ridiculous. Yeah, well, le- lesson learned, and, and, obviously. And, and they've kind of admitted that by yeah, of course they have. rectifying that this year. It was the feedback. But it was, always, it, was always, it was always going to be a, it was always a bad decision, and it didn't need one year to tell us that. I could, I could have told them that before it happened, but. Yeah. You're going to lose a bunch of really good players here, and that's not a good idea. Yeah. And you're going to hurt the tournament because the men are going to be pissed off, and they're going to be like, I'm not going to play that again. Yeah, that's right. That, 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 to, that, that. You know, it's a long way to fly from Europe. Not that the European field was any good, but it's a long way to fly to Europe to play three rounds and miss the cut. I mean, sure, you got paid, but 
I should just play yeah, better. I mean, <laughs> Alejandro Canazari only made the cut on Sunday because Marcus Fraser took four to get down from 20 yards off the ninth green, which was his last hole on Saturday. Canazari makes the cut because Fraser screws up, shoots 64 and finishes fourth. Finishes fourth, yeah. Gets in the British Open, you know. When's the last time Marcus but, Fraser took four to get down from 20 yards? Maybe the 70s? Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's fabulous around the Greece. It's a conundrum, though, Clates, isn't it? What, what do you do? The Australian Open, the Men's Australian Open was in trouble. The, the Women's Australian Open obviously losing me. What, what would you do? I'm not sure I can see an obvious clear-cut solution. I'm not sure that this is the solution. It's what it's going to be, so we've got to make the best of it for yeah. uh, as long as it goes on. I don't I know. Mean, what... The future of it, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people disagree, and I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do. I think, I think a levy is a great idea. I mean, every golfer pays... Golf Australia, $85 a year through their membership fees. Mm-hmm. So you either increase that or you take the money out, take $20 out, whatever. I mean, the Open hasn't been in Perth or Brisbane or Adelaide, essentially, apart from the one-off in 98 or Hobart, for 50 years for, or Canberra ever. So five of the most significant cities in the country haven't had the Open for 50 years, haven't seen the Open. Canberra never, the others for 50 years, basically. Can we go another 50 years? Can you go 100 years and not play the Australian Open in Perth or Adelaide or Hobart? We'll find out. Or Canberra? Or, we might be or, here. Or, but, well, yeah. or Brisbane? Well, I mean, well, it's unthinkable that- Men's Open. It, it, it's the Australian Open. It needs to go around the country. So if if you levied golfers and you took 20 bucks or 10, whatever- So take the, sponsor, a, the pressure, sponsorship pressure off. Is that what you're saying? Because the problem, the reason it hasn't been to those places is because you can't find a sponsor. Sponsors, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, and when the, and when the Open- Comes to Perth. If you've paid that levy, if you've paid over the over the, if you go around the country every every six six or seven years, if you've paid the seventy dollars or one hundred and forty dollars over the that the the time that the open takes to come back to your city, then you get you get in for free. So essentially, you're pre buying a ticket for when the open comes to Perth. You've prepaid your ticket by paying that paying. Ten or twenty dollars out of a levy every year to fund the open. You can already hear every golfer has got no intention oh, of going can, to the open. Tell yeah. you why they're having to subsidise your ticket. But I, I, I take that. Yeah. Well, what do you reckon about that, Logue? Is, is Clates onto something? I'm not. I'm not so sure. I'd need. I'd need to see some <laughs> spreadsheets and charts. <laughs> yeah. What are your KPIs? Yeah. <laughs> Broadly speaking, though, the concept of um, the Australian Open not going outside of Sydney and Melbourne for uh, many years, Clay said it was. It doesn't sit right, does it? With the with uh, what well, you would it's hope. Been essentially, nineteen seventy five, when Packer, Harry Packer, yep. and the Bullet and Channel Nine sponsored the Open. The seventy, the last year of the rotation was seventy four. It was at Lake Carinup, where Gary Player won. Yep. And apart from ninety eight in Adelaide and the the Grand in two thousand and one or whenever it was, it's been in Sydney or Melbourne. But essentially, Sydney since two thousand and. Six, six, right? six or seven, I think it was. Yeah, they signed that deal. Six, Fifteen, six, six fifteen was the year deal. Six was the Sendon one that yep. when Sendon beat Ogilvy. Ogilvy was the US Open champion. That's right. So, so you know, so it's been in Sydney apart from last year. Yeah, you know, it's, it's been it's been the New South Wales Open. And they negotiated that into the the last quarter that they could take it out yeah. two years of the of the remaining seven. So, what, what would you do? Like, I, I don't have the answers. I agree with the sentiment that it should be travelled around, but uh, this dependency we have on state money is obviously a bit of an issue. Um, 
the, uh, the the Women's Open at least has been travelled around a little bit and has been played in Canberra. Well, having said that, it was fabulous when it was anchored in Adelaide. I went to two of those. Well, it was, a brilliant, it was, it was fantastic. A terrific. Event. It was really good in Adelaide. I don't know about anchoring. I think that's You're again. You're very anti that, aren't you? It's de- that's locking it into a state thing, which is how we've gotten into the Men's Open being at well, Sydney we all this time. It, because we anchored it in New South Wales. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd anchored it in Melbourne, it might not be in quite so much trouble. No, but I mean, the, I, the overriding sentiment that I yeah, agree I with in that. this conversation is that it should but if you can't if you can't do that sh- if you can't do that then surely your next most most important criteria should be to play it on the best golf courses you can uh yeah but not if not if it means necessarily taking state money as the as something that locks you into that compromise of of having it hosted in that state i mean obviously that that's the case but multi these multi-year state deals and that dependency we have on that i think we've is something i think we need to wean ourselves off because what what difference is it making money wise it's taking the purse from what oh, 3 yeah. million to 3.5 million or it's taking it from 1 million to 3 million or something like that and we know that 3 million purse isn't enough to get the job done anyway no, it's we not, can't it's not having on any impact on the field at no, all. We cannot compete on purse. Even if you get to ten million, we know that that's just barely going to be it's holding. It's half an elevated event with, with the <laughs> rocket mortgage or something like that. So half a designated event. Yeah. So what's the point of trying to like compromise everything for this thing? I mean, at least you, you can. You don't want to be losing money on it. So I get that. Um, but it's it's not. A, I mean, I, the argument always comes back to purse and what players we can attract. I think we've got to forget that. Just keep it like have it be the the torn the most prestigious national open in the world outside of the US and and open championship, which uh has retained its identity. Um that I, I just keep coming back to that. I think that's that's what you've got to lean on as the identity of the tournament is it's a it's a national it's an independent national open that's retained that identity. And the yeah. value in it for the players is that you're winning a national open and putting your name on the Stonehaven Cup. Um, and but we just players, seen a two-year example rock, that really? the players don't care about that. <laughs> well, like they wouldn't like, if you'd co-sanction with Europe. No, I get that. It becomes just an. It's like I think that's I'm a terrible idea. Because, yeah, I think yeah, it's I'm playing idea. here because it's, my schedule says yeah. I meant to play here. Again, I agree with your sentiment. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it's an effective way necessarily. As long as you break even, what's the what's the problem? Like, just make enough money to. So you can stage the tournament, and it might be ten yeah. years of that. Like, what's the what's the problem with that? Clates, yeah. what do you reckon? Would you put Logan in charge? <laughs> he doesn't want to be in charge, you know that. But would you put him in charge with that plan anyway? Yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah, it's, I mean, the problem is that there are so many things that are relying on state governments now buying events because because events are a big part of what state governments do now. I mean, the Grand Prix. I assume the Victorian government pay for the Grand Prix or pay for a truckload of it. Oh, of course, well, and it's a legitimate tourism tool. There's anything wrong with that? It's just when it's a compromise of it is multi-year deals. Pe- people yeah. always congratulate yeah. themselves and pat themselves on the back for like multi-year deals with these state governments. Forget that. Like, have it just be one-off things, and then renegotiate it next year. Like, that's that's why they pay these yeah. commercial directors but, the big bucks. But, but to I think keep as going a principle, the open some. should mm. go around the country. I just don't see that. But, Principle well, clashes with money every time, doesn't it, Clades? And we're talking about professional golf, so you're talking about money. Yeah. And you recall that whole issue with um, Jordan Spieth being photographed playing down at Mel- down in Melbourne when he was here to play the Australian Open in Sydney, that, and that caused right, a problem. Was- His contract was that you were here to promote Sydney, not Melbourne. Yeah. That's madness. As a golfer, you can completely understand why you went to Melbourne. Gre- Grella got Sydney. married in Sydney, didn't he? Who did his not bit? Not sure. Was it Mary or 
honeymoon in Sydney? I don't know. I think he was doing it. He was doing his bit. You see all these competing interesting, and, and we do need to give up on the notion of the purse for the Australian Open mattering in any way, shape, yeah. or form. It makes absolutely no. You cannot compete with the PGA Tour. It's just impossible. Yeah. I reckon they could put up $20 million this year and it wouldn't... It wouldn't make a difference to who can. Field, wouldn't budge the field more than no. 10 players no. than anyone ever heard of. Yeah. But, no one from but, America is getting on the plane to fly down here for paper. Exactly. That's right. And which ones are you going to put on the marquees, that that line George Street or something, you know, to attract people? Like, it's just, yeah. Were well, you going to put Cantlay on the I mean, marquee? Like, yeah. Well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, all, 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 all we need is, you know, Hannah Green, Minji Lee, Mimu Lee, Cameron Davis, Cameron Smith. Yeah, you know, the best Australians. Um, Get all the best Australians that, to come back because they want to win their National Open. Mark Leishman, you know, maybe one day Jason Day might even come back and dain us with his presence. But, um, you know, it would be I – mean, that's fine. And just, just play a great course and have a great tournament and run a great event. and Don't make a let loss. Walk, Focus on the walk golf. on the fairways yeah. and let's not make a loss. Yeah. Let's run a decent tournament. Focus on the golf. What did Peter Fowler say when we asked him about it at the Sandbelt Invitational a couple of years ago? When they'd cancelled the Australian Open, and he was gutted. He said, it's just madness. He said, we're having a tournament here. This could be an Australian Open. Put some tents up next to yeah. the 18th fairway and let the players play golf. That's an Australian Open. Someone's going to shoot the lowest yeah. score and someone's going to win the trophy. And that's yeah, what golf is. You're right. But anyway, and, uh, yeah, and they've got true. to have – well, and, of course, TV is such a different beast now that uh, – I mean, does anyone I – mean, having said that, live sport's about the only thing that – Attracts anyone to watch TV anymore, isn't it? And it's not going to last anyway. on television for a whole lot longer. I wouldn't have thought. There's a, there's enough over the top digital independent companies thinking yeah. they can produce sport and send it to your computer screen and your television screen without having to go through an existing TV network. Yeah, so- yeah. I was, I, I was listening to Scott Galloway's podcast this morning. He was talking about Amazon, Google, Facebook, mm. and Apple. You know, the four biggest companies in the world. And he said, you know, the, the sport will be on on, on Amazon soon. Yeah, that, look, they've all dabbled. The, the issues they come up against, yeah. the issues that everybody comes up against is, oh, TV, a lot of money in TV, let's get into TV because we're a big company. But, of course, you've got to have specialist knowledge and people who know what they're doing to actually run a television product. I mean, you can see that with the golf. You know, you have lots of Joey come latelys and fly-by-nighters. You know, yeah, we've got 35 cameras and enough that we could produce the golf and put it on digital, but that doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Some of them yeah. can do it better, though. Like there's, the, no question been, that, there's no question that um, not all of the best people in television work in television. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's true of almost Apple, every industry. Apple have gotten into some of the Major League Baseball areas, I think, some certain jurisdictions, and apparently the product's really good, and I think they're looking to do the same with some NFL as well. I don't know. It's, they bring some innovation to it, I think, a little bit like Fox did with the US Open. Mixes yeah, it up a little bit. Agree, with but the golf coverage, it's not gonna happen boy. Not, the, but it'll happen. How bad was that, the golf coverage of the, the women's PGA last week? Pretty was, bad. Yeah. Hopefully we get better at uh, Pebble Beach in a couple of weeks. Which will be Pebble Beach would be great. Yeah, the yeah. Open there will be really cool. Yeah, couldn't agree. Well, and there's, I mean, speaking of Liv and the, the deal they leaked, well, I didn't leak, they, you know, the papers that got sent out today um, – the document. The, uh, uh, the best thing that Greg could do, assuming that Greg's on the way out, I don't know. Is that what people are assuming? I, I think that's changed a little bit now. Seems, sentiment seems to be that lives knows. hanging around. This thing's fluid. It's going to have to be profitable. No one, no, I don't think. I don't think anyone knows what's going on. But I think that you know, if Greg had any any influence left with the Saudis and the PJ Tour and the Live Tour in Australia, that it would be to force a merger between. 
finally between Asia and Australia. So you, you could have one decent tour in Asia and through Australia. That, that would be, yeah, you know, it, it would give the best young players in Australia at least somewhere to play. Yeah, look, put simply, what you need is you've got the PGA Tour is, is going to be it and it's going to be it for, Probably forever. It's going to be the place that everybody ends yeah, up wanting to be. be yeah. So you need feeder tours. That's what you need. It's what Europe is becoming, and it's what yeah. Corn Ferry Tour is, and you need those around the place. And it absolutely makes sense that Australia slash Asia should be one of those feeder tours, it's particularly Asia. That's a huge potential market. Imagine if we get I mean, SSP Chow Asia down here playing regularly. That'd be good. That'd be, uh, that'd be a highlight, wouldn't it? Yeah. That'd be but they've got, yeah, they've got lots of. Good players up there now who they have. They really have. I mean, it's, but the, the, Terry Gale and Marshy tried to get the Asian Tour and the Australian Tour together thirty or forty years ago. It never worked because the older, more traditional Asian type player, they'd come and play in Australia and go to Royal Melbourne and they couldn't play those greens. They, you know, they're putting on power grass in Asia and come to Royal Melbourne and that, instead of running at yeah. eight feet, they're running at fourteen and it wasn't their golf. But you know, they've got lots of terrific young players now that they could easily come and play in Australia. Now. Yeah, no, question. and it would be, no question. you know, I think I think it would help both tours if it was one tour, Definitely. and you could play, you know, you could play thirty-five or forty pretty good tournaments. Absolutely, you could. Absolutely, you could. And there's no reason why you couldn't involve a whole bunch of women in that as well, uh, which would and, make it also also make an yeah. awful lot of sense. And you assume that that's a matter for Greg and the Saudis. That's that's one phone call, isn't it? Know. So, who knows what's you know, going on? Well, I mean, Liv obviously pretty much own the Asian tour by the sound of it. Yeah, that's so, right. Well, they yeah. do. If Greg said, you know, I, I think you know the Asian tour and the Australian tour should merge, and here's the deal, and the Saudis are not only they're throwing money around everywhere by the sounds of it, but they don't need to throw that much to make that tour work. Yeah, it was starting to rival the DP World Tour, I thought, in terms of significance. The Asian tour, with yeah. the international series, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, unquestionably so. Unquestionably. So just just on a rabbit hole, close to about Asian play, Asian tour players coming down and struggling at Royal Melbourne. One of the, I've never seen quite so much fear and 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 wonder in a person's eyes as the poor young kid from Bhutan playing in the 2014, um, uh, what's the the Asia Pacific Amateur. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a five marker at the nine hole golf course in Bhutan, where he was a member. Yeah. He he got on the first green at Royal Melbourne, and he was he was already in a state of shock, having seen the fairways and the landscape. And he got on the green and he hit a putt, and you could almost see. And he's a like, hang on, this is completely unrecognisable. <laughs> I don't know what's going. On. Lovely, lovely young bloke. I remember interviewing him. He was terrific young bloke. But yes, it was a it was a it was a departure from what he was used to. If we. <laughs> Yeah, isn't we could isn't put Bhutan at the very top of the happiness index in the world? Yeah, they've got the, the gross domestic happiness they measured in, and I think they only had one set of traffic lights and no television until the nineties, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. No mobile, no mobile phones, and no, I don't know whether it's still the same. I think what happened was that everybody sort of read that somewhere on a web story, and everybody started going to Bhutan, and now Bhutan's probably just like everywhere else in the world because it's yeah, the, every other tourists and tourists are ruined, awash yeah. with tourist yeah. money and Coca Cola and American backpacks yeah. and Australian. People doing what you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. no, no mobile phones. That's that's not living. <laughs> no, no, they probably do have mobile. mobile. I just that was a kind of, yeah. Anyway, mobile phones. Yeah, they make our lives better and they make them worse, don't they? Mm. Yeah, I think. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter because they're here. Yeah, I'm not giving mine up, and I, no. I, I don't know anybody else who's either. You, not, you yeah. can't put it down if you right want now. To. No. Yeah, I've got, I've got it in my hand. <laughs> right now, buzzing text, text <laughs> messages at me, and I can't possibly live without knowing what that text message might be. 
All right. Well, Clay, it's going to be, you're going to be at the Open, I take it, at Royal Liverpool. What you, you would have played Royal Liverpool, possibly even in an Open. What are we going to expect to no, see that before I, we let you go? I, we played a European Tour event there in 1991, and I played there a bit. I watched Tiger mm-hmm. with Huggy inside the ropes the last two rounds in 2006, which was What a run you had there with Tiger, you and incredible Huggy. Incredible golf, What yeah. a triumvirate and, you three formed. Yeah, we did. And then um, I played there last year. I was there last year. I played there last year, yep. Well, it's good. They've got the new 17th hole, which apparently the RNA want the Open decided on the 17th hole. So they've built a new 17th hole of par three, which is a, it doesn't fit into the routing at all well. You kind of come to the 17th tee, hit onto the 17th green, and then you walk off the 17th green, you walk back past the 17th tee, <laughs> you get the 18th tee. Okay. And it's a, anyone who's played the 7th of Bamboogle, it's like the 7th of Bamboogle, mm. but with, with the bunker halfway down the slope on the right, and the ball comes off the green at the front, and it's there's death over the back, and it's just the biggest nightmare would be that Patrick Reed made a two and Rory made a five and lost by one. <laughs> looks a little bit out of character with the rest of the course as well, yeah, just well, the way it's yeah, – From what Plates has described there, very much. So. Well, routing as well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll be there, yeah, the Plates. Cr- I'll, yeah. I'll see you at the Open. You're going to the Open? Yeah. I'm, oh, I mean, you're going to the Open? Oh, I mean, great. we've had enough of Clates bragging about where he's playing, but I'm, I've got a game at Southport Nainsdale on the way there and Birkdale and a couple other games along the way, but, you know, I'll well, be, be at the Open. Clayton DeVries and Pont and staff have got a house – with Sam Cooper right near the golf course, so come and join us. Oh, will Adrian send, yeah. me, send me a text and we'll catch like up. You can a bunch of come around for dinner, meet all the boys. Yeah, enough about you two. <laughs> I did want to get your thoughts just before we let you go, Clay. The, probably the tournament I feel like I'm looking forward to most this year is the Women's Open at Walton Heath. I think that's going to be amazing. Yep. You'd be more than familiar yeah, with Walton good. Heath, I'm, I'm assuming. What should we yeah, look Walt, out for Walt, at Walton Heath, Walton those Heath. who don't know it? Walton Heath's terrific. It's a kind of Heathland course, no not many trees, but you know, fairways lined with heather, which Gordon Brand Jr. when I first went over there, R.I.P. Gordon, he um he said if you go on the heather, it might look like you can hit three wood out of it. Just take a sandwich and hit it back on the fairway. Mm-hmm. And that was the best bit of advice I had ever had about playing out of heather. Right. So it lined the fairways are whitish, but they're bouncy. Nobolo finished second to Andrew Murray in a European Open there. When it was like paint on the road, it was so bouncy. But it's a tremendous course. Yeah, they played the famous Ryder Cup there in 81 when the Americans had the best team ever. Nicholas Watson, Trevino, Floyd, Rogers, Crenshaw, phenomenal team, Jerry Pate. So it's a great London Heathland course. I only remember seeing it. A couple of years ago in that Bet Fred Masters, whatever they called yeah. the Eddie Pepper one there, and I was just remember looking, turning on the TV and going, oh, yeah, I'm going to camp here for the next few hours. This, this looks amazing. That's what it's all about. I, I, I say this every time we talk about Walton Heath, but I don't know why we don't see more of this style of bunker, especially on relatively nondescript land where you just you dig the bunker out of the ground and you leave the fill in front of it and that becomes the face. On the green side. Yeah, on the green yeah. side, yeah. And that becomes the face and, you know, and there you go. you've got beautiful heather you can grow over it there, of course. We don't have the same sort of ground cover all over the world, but... Yeah, I mean, what a beautiful way to shape a bunker mm. on, on relatively flat ground. It, they just look magnificent at, at Walton Heath. Yeah, the, the London Heathland course is a, it's as good as a Samba. I mean, I think Royal Melbourne, if you combine them and did a ranking, I think Royal Melbourne would still be the best guy. I think it's a better course than Stangdale. Yeah. But, the, you, know, you know, just under that, there are 15 or 20 amazing courses in London. Well, here's the problem right. with the ball going too far, Clates. 
we never get to see the Sunningdales and the Heathland well, courses no, used yeah, for professional yeah, events anymore. Sure. So, so those of us outside of England who haven't been lucky enough to be there just don't get to don't get to see them. Well, don't get to and, with and, them at all. And, yeah, the Sandbelt had to keep up with the equipment because they were they were our championship golf course. They were, they were you know, aside from you know a couple in Sydney and one in Brisbane and a few in Adelaide and one in Perth and you know. Melbourne was the centre of championship golf, and our courses had to keep up with the distance, and and then they always did. But the, the you know Woking and New Zealand and Swinley Forest and the Berkshire and you know, Warpleston and West Hill and Royal Ashdown Forest, those great London Heathland courses, never had to keep up because they weren't tournament courses. No, and the members didn't. Members yeah. course, no, that's right. Yeah, so, so you play New Zealand at or Swinley Forest at six thousand two, three, four hundred yards. And the members couldn't care less. They, you know, they, mm. they just bumped the ball around, and they're, they're perfect for them. Yep, what to be because, said for them? Because Wentworth was the tournament course, and no one cared about Wentworth. So Wentworth was the Wentworth was did all the heavy lifting for tournaments. Maybe somebody should have some, cared about Wentworth because it's turned into something that really it looks be. very American <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a tragedy. Distortion it? of yeah, it's a gross distortion of what it was. But, yeah, yeah. It's but but that was the tournament course, and that, and that was where you went, and that was what they did. Clay, it's been great yep. to talk to you, mate. Enjoy the Thank rest you. of your trip. I'm sure we'll talk to you again while you're away, but I'm sure you and I'm sure you will enjoy the Open. But uh, no doubt I'll be getting. Well, no doubt I'll get a text from the two of you when you link up at the Open, yeah, going through we'll, your we'll fancy Open yep. stuff, yeah, from your house. But good of you from to, to good of you to take some time today, mate. Really appreciate it. All right, that was great. Say good day to Sue Force too. All right, thanks, mate. And Logue, good to have you aboard as always. Thanks, Rod. That's it for episode what number? 149. 149. We'll be back to do it again with episode 150 of the Good Good Golf Podcast.